Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome once again alive from my office. This is Steve Cochran. I hope you're well. I hope you're having a happy holiday season so far. Oh, it's stress time. Yeah, you know, when you get close to Christmas and New Year's is just ahead, you're all stressed out. You still have to get one gift for somebody. Maybe it's somebody you really don't want to shop for, but you feel obligated. So obviously you're caught up in the holiday magic. Look, there's tons of stress. There's tons of bad news out there. It's exhausting. The Omicron variant, the Delta variant, the COVID, the shots, the mass, the people yelling at each other, the, the global warming, the supply chain problem, idiots in Congress. I mean, there's bad news all around us. So you know what you need? You need to laugh, my friend. You need to laugh. Yeah, you do. That's why you need to come to our New Year's Eve show. Uh, this year, we're doing a matinee, 3 o'clock in the afternoon on New Year's Eve, which clears the entire night for you to actually go home and think what a good time you had and then start thinking about what you're going to have to face the next few days with the other problems in the world and then start drinking heavily. I don't advocate that. I'm just saying you need a break. You need a good time on New Year's Eve. That's why you need to come out. John DeCoste, one of the funniest people you'll ever meet and a darn nice fella. Good singing voice, too, if you want to hire him for a wedding. I don't even know if he does weddings. It would be funny if you called. Uh, Mike Toomey from Channel 9. Hilarious. One of the best stand-up comedians in the country. Tim Benker, always funny. And he runs a full-time business on the side. Like a legitimate job. And yet he still has time to be funny. And you know, there's people who think I'm funny, too. Hopefully you're one of them. We have special guests as well, and we want you to be there. 3 o'clock, New Year's Eve, at the Rouse Center in Crystal Lake. That's R-A-U-E center.org in Crystal Lake. You can also call the box office if you want, if you have uh, questions about anything, including the character questions you might have about the four of us who are uh, on the main bill. Uh, 815-356-9212. 815-356-9212 is the Rouse Center. Or just get your tickets at Rouse Center. Dot com. I think it's a dot org. It's rousecenter.com. Isn't it dot com? You know, you would think I would know this after all these years. It's rousecenter.org, Steve. It's rousecenter.org. All right, let's make sure we understand that. It's rousecenter.org. R-A-U-E center dot O-R-G. I'm sure of that. I really am. All right, on today's episode, we're doing a year-end thing in regards to politics because man i would like this political year to be over and i'm sure you feel the same way i love pat brady and eric edelstein they're good friends but on top of that they're two guys who come from completely different political views pat's a republican eric's a democrat they're both bigwigs by the way and yet they can have a decent conversation and respectfully disagree with each other without screaming without posting things on social media about their mothers they just they they did the way it should be done this country is built on respectful disagreements. 
And these guys can do it. So anyway, uh, the political year in review and a few laughs in there as well with Eric Edelstein and Pat Brady. That's coming up. Thank you, David Hochberg. As always, we couldn't do it without our title sponsor, David Hochberg at Team Hochberg. And uh, it's 855-56-DAVID or 56david.com. Look, if it's good enough for my family and my friends, I know he can help you. Anything related to your house and the money you spend, he's got you covered. Financing, refinancing, and he knows everybody in regards to those expenses that you have to make when you own a home. 855-56-DAVID, 56david.com. Thank you, David Hochberg, for the loyalty and the support at teamhochberg.com. All right, we'll come back and you'll hear Pat Brady, Eric Edelstein, and me. Politics 2021, the year in review. It's a worthy listen right after this on Live From My Office. I don't want to take a second here with David Hochberg from Team Hochberg to just say thanks. Along with the support you give us here on Live from My Office, you've done such a great job of taking care of my son and my daughter and my sister. Um, the brother I never knew uh, I uh, had uh, in John DeCoste. Uh, and the list goes on and on and on. And it's people we know through show business. Um, but people, I, I literally, literally have never had anybody work with you and went, Boy, I'm never touching that Hochberg again. That just didn't work out. You know what they do say? They say, he saved me so much money. And he explained it. And I finally understand it. That's the customer service you get from you and your people. And you ought to be proud of that. I would agree with that 100%. Buying, selling, refinancing, moving to another state, licensed in 35 states. I have relationships with uh, bankers in this industry that are licensed in the state that we're not, that I trust that if you're moving to a state that we're not licensed in, I can make the introduction and they'll take care of you like I would take care of you here. 855-56-DAVID or 56david.com. On the radio Saturday mornings on WGN at what time? Uh, That would be 10 until 1 on AM 720 WGN. You could also find us. We have, we set up a mini uh, TV studio and there were green screens. If you go on Facebook, and I uh, would like to follow us and check us out and see how how overweight and beaten down we are. You go, you just go, you just type in Home Sweet Home Chicago on Facebook Saturday at ten and check it out. It's kind of cool. It's David Ockberg, eight five five fifty six David fifty six David dot com. Now he's never gonna look at politics. He's simply black and white. Yeah. Listen to Pat Brady. Listen to Pat Brady. He's really gonna blow your mind because he's seldom wrong, just right. Yeah. Listen to. This is live from my office, and I called two old friends, and I said, would you be willing to talk to me about the year in politics? And they went, well, why not? No one else will. Uh, Pat Brady's here. Pat, where do you work? Uh, Next Generation Strategies. Thank you, Steve. Good to see you, Eric. Long time no talk. Good to see you. Hi, Pat. Happy Happy holidays, Pat. Happy holidays to you, too. It's a great time. I can't wait. Is your daughter home yet? She will be home tomorrow. Isn't that fun? Pat, what about your 12 children? Are they home? (laughs) They're all over the country. We are meeting in uh, Phoenix, which is not geographically central, but it is for me. So (laughs) we're we're meeting out there uh, actually next week, about five days. How about you? That's nice. Uh, The family's all going to be here, so I'll keep Chicago busy. But in the meantime, I think, Eric, you and I can agree. Phoenix, the Christmas city. It does just shout Christmas. They do a great job with the snow and everything else there. You know, you know what really shouts Christmas, guys, is playing golf Christmas morning. Yep. That, that is that is right out of a, 
an old Hollywood movie. <laughs> um, do, do they decorate cacti? Uh, and you know, they light them up. Um, yeah, yeah, they do. It's actually deserts pretty, but uh, yeah, it's nice. Well, thanks for inviting uh, uh, us. We appreciate it. You guys are more than welcome. Come out. We can play golf. You know, the twenty fifth and TF at ten. <laughs> It does sound pretty good, to be honest. I know. <laughs> um, all right, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit. By year in review, we're going to hit the state, we're going to hit the city, and uh, and, and nationally. Got to start with January six. Um, uh, Congress is uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A hideous embarrassment in how so much of this stuff gets handled, and this feels slower than ever. You know, a vaccine got developed that saved has literally saved millions of lives that we'll never know but we still can't get any sort of expeditious activity going on in moving this crap along. So where are we with the January 6th hearing? Why do we need it? And why do we need to have endless discussions about contempt when that's actually what happens every single day from the Republican side, Pat? Actually, I don't agree with you. The hearing's not moving quickly enough. They do need to gather literally hundreds of thousands of documents. They're issuing subpoenas. The Trump people are stonewalling. Mark Meadows asserting invalid executive privilege claims. Um, they've already held Steve Bannon in contempt. He's got a criminal trial coming up in four or five months. I think they're going as fast as they can. The, what the Republicans are saying is it's an unfair committee. Everybody's here, uh, uh, Axe Grinding, Kinzinger, Adam Kinzinger, and, uh, and uh, Congressman, Congresswoman Cheney. Uh, but I think we saw yesterday, the day before yesterday, some of these emails that have come out from even Donald Trump Jr. that went to Mark Meadows and even Fox News folks saying Talk about the text messages get the national guard down here now we're under yeah, the text messages, right? and the president didn't react that's problematic but the republicans generally uh to my disappointment are stonewalling a lot of this so we're never going to get the answers immediately that we need uh, eric we live at a time where the truth still almost a year down the road post trump doesn't matter it doesn't matter that you have video of me saying one thing what i'm saying now is what you need to hear and this is what I'm going to tell you. And then you can go out and tell your friends. The F and Fox is obviously for fraud more so now than ever. What do you do about it? Other than Democrats screaming at each other, how do you fix this? Well, it's a frightening moment um, for liberal democracy. And I, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not a particular alarmist, but um, if you put aside the process stuff on the January 6th hearings and you just start seeing how close we came to, you know, a free and fair election being thrown out, uh, to to install Trump in, in really what would be the first coup d'etat in, in American history, we were close and he had legal authority and he was exploring every option. And the January 6th protest was, uh, you know, the insurrection and it turned violent. But that was an attempt to stop the vote, to stop the counting of the electoral ballots, because they believed they could get these state legislatures to uh, select their own electors. And I think, you know, it's really important. I do think we get to the bottom of this because, you know, look, um, in this kabuki theater of American politics, there are Republicans and not not all of them, but there are Republicans who are enabling this group that were cop killers, that, you know, uh, were domestic terrorists who are being called patriots and whatnot. And that needs to be sorted out. But But going forward, um, I think what what people don't get or aren't paying enough attention to, I believe, particularly our party, is what's being set up for the next presidential election. And that's truly frightening. Well, and, and, and here's the, the reason I bring up the speed point. Um, you can take all the time you want in Congress to do certain things. You can't this. 
You can't. And by the way, you could take another year. You could take two years. You could develop all the legal uh, background and, and backing you need to say a Republican did this or that. The believers aren't going to change their opinion. You need an expedited process that moves this along. And if it becomes a criminal matter, then it needs to become a criminal matter. But every day of covering this slows down everything and creates more skepticism and apathy in American voters. And I don't understand how that's not seen as dangerous. Well, it is dangerous, but I, I do think they'll get to the bottom of it. But I guess my point is um, look a little deeper under the hood. So just, just going back to the 2020 election, um, the reason that the free and fair election and, a, and an election that Biden won by, you know, not a small margin, millions and millions of votes was upheld because of the courage of election officials in states and counties. And a lot of them Republicans, to be Absolutely. honest, who said, you know, this is America. We count the vote and we count the vote honestly. And there was not fraud. And they stood up and they certified the election as it should have been. And Biden became president. So now what's happened, though, is these Trump legislatures across the country are passing laws saying next time, if we don't like what those profiles and courage did in terms of counting the vote, we can replace them. We can dump them, put partisans in there and basically throw out votes that we don't like that didn't didn't come the way we wanted to. And, and that's. You know, is that the end of democracy? Is that the end of the way people foresee elections? I, I think we are in this perfect storm, Steve. And I don't know how you put the toothpaste back in the tube, where if everyone has their own reality, everyone has their own set of facts, everyone's going to have their own set of who won the election. And, you know, it's going to be the tyranny of the majority who has the power to ram through who they want. It's not going to be, you know, the choice of, of, of the voters. That's a frightening prospect. Yep. I agree. And this is what we've been talking about, the three of us, for six years now. The net effect of Trump dumbing down everything and making this conduct legitimate, which is, Eric, this is what happened on January 6th, was a, a, an attempted coup. And for that not to be outrage and everybody agreeing that that's wrong. I mean, Trump created this environment. Well, OK, that's OK. The win at any cost, forget the Constitution argument. It's very very scary. And I, I think we'll get by it. But I, I'm as concerned as Eric is for the for the democracy itself, because these developments are not good. And I'm, I'm be interesting and anxious to see what happens in the next election cycle to see how much of these things that have been put in place, some of which I don't agree with Eric on everything. I'm not one that says you shouldn't have um, stronger election laws. I've seen it here in Illinois. Some things are bad. That being said, what Eric mentioned, replacing people with partisans so they can change the outcomes. That's ridiculous. Well, and also uh, that has become the main talking point of not answering a question, whether it's meet the press on a Sunday morning or or anywhere else, this podcast, whatever. Uh, and that is, do you believe Joe Biden won the election? Well, I believe in fair elections. Well, no shit, Sherlock. Everybody believes in fair elections. And obviously you don't. So when the Republicans are just running with this 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 myth that every state operation, regardless of party in control, is some fraud operation that's happening. And even though they may have won their reelection, it was a fraud at the presidential level. I mean, those two things don't add up. And, and you know, there's a level of stupidity in this country that doesn't want to do the deep dive of a couple more clicks on their, on their computer or Google searches to figure out the truth. So you need leadership to stand up and say the right thing. Where is McCarthy? Where is McConnell? 
you know, I think, go ahead, Pat. No, no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say is what's, I read something that, you know, even, even in 1861, Southern states acknowledged Lincoln won the vote. They didn't question that he won. They just said, we don't like the outcome, so we're going to secede. You know, th- this is even more nefarious in, in some ways, right? If and, and it all goes back to this really s- sort of sociopath, stunted mental brain of Donald Trump who can't accept loss, right? Like he, he, he's incapable of, of admitting what a failure he is. Right. So he has to perpetuate this lie. And because he's some dear leader, like a dictatorship, these people just follow along and, and want to go along with his sick narrative that, you know, is, is just so not the facts. And that's a really, really dangerous place to be for us. You know, just to, as a Republican, a longtime conservative, this is so far away, his behavior from what I got into this game for many years. 100%. This is not Ronald Reagan. This is not H.W. Bush. This isn't even W. This is just a freak show that he has. And he has captured a large percentage of, of the Republican Party. And it's scary because we need new, young, different leadership. And Trump's sucking all the oxygen out of the room right now. And I would just say in terms of the White House. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, a lot of the policy he's pushing, I think, is is important and structural and the wealth inequality needs to be addressed in this country. And, you know, the tears and the social safety net that have just led to, I think, a lot of the crime and whatnot. But more fundamentally, I, I don't the, the fact that they can't pass federal uh, voting rights legislation by revoking the filibuster could go down as what as the great failure of the Biden administration if they don't get their act together on this. And I don't care what norms or who you're upsetting, but if you don't if you don't pass a law that says no, we're not going to allow this kabuki theater in all these states and all these counties and it does go back to the 60s and civil and, and voting rights legislation which basically said no, every locality doesn't get to do whatever they want to do. We have a US constitution that says one person one vote and that vote should be counted and you need right. federal laws to enforce that. If they can't get the Senate to revoke the filibuster and pass this legislation, then, you know, I think we're going to look back decades from now and say that was the beginning of the end. Yeah. And and the way this has been handled by the Biden White House is sort of emblematic of the problems they've had of of communicating the good that they've done and getting through the bad. So let's start with the obvious here when it comes to the White House. Joe Biden is a 78 year old man who has lived his life in politics, who has been through an unbelievable amount of personal tragedy. And there is no way that could not weigh on you along with the normal process of aging. So maybe we drop the argument that he's not who he once was, because guess what? None of us are. Um, He should have people around him who help him do the job every day. I believe he's perfectly capable of doing the job for for a term. Why is he struggling so much in getting other things done? Because let's give him credit where credit's due. He has gotten a lot done in the first year. Well, I would say because being an incumbent in in America today is awful. People... um, know what they don't want they don't know what they do want so basically all the all the sort of alienation and all the anxiety and all the um sort of fear about this changing world gets taken out on anybody who's in power and you basically say they're not doing what i need they're not doing what i want so that's part of it i think it's just an incredibly difficult time i mean look at the jobs numbers you know you you combine uh 
And again, he's benefited, yes, from from post-COVID, but I think he's also done a tremendous job on stimulating stuff. But if you look just statistically, the number of jobs created in the Biden administration is more than, you know, the last three Republican presidents combined. And yet there's this this dread and this feeling, maybe it's partly because of the inflation numbers, partly because of the supply chain issues, that somehow the economy is terrible. Well, the economy is not terrible. Uh, you know, we have the lowest unemployment rate since we put a man on the moon. So it's just this moment where, you know, everyone feels an anxiety and it's just really hard to govern. Pat? Yeah, I question uh, Eric's numbers on the, the job creation. I think it's just people getting back to work. But I do agree the economy is not nearly as bad as the Republicans say it is. There is there is low inflation, uh, uh, excuse me, unemployment. But this inflation is a big worry. And I'm not an economist, but I play one on Steve Cochran's show. And you mm-hmm. dump this much money into the economy, you're going to get rising costs of goods. And we're seeing that 6.8% in the last quarter. And their wholesale prices were up 9%. Gas prices through the roof. So there is kind of a structural problem we got to deal with. We'll wait and see what happens in the next quarter. They say it's supposed to come down in 2022. But if it doesn't, then we're going to be back where we were in 1980 when we had stagflation, which was rising unemployment and rising inflation. And that took a two-year shock to the system, economic system in this country to get ourselves out of it. So, but the thing is, too, I want to mention on Biden, I'm not a Biden hater like a lot of the uh, Republicans are. Actually, Biden was a good friend of McCain, so I was thought highly of him. But for some reason, and maybe it's what Eric said, that people are um, uptight, so they're going to take it out on who's ever sitting there. But he, the, the message that he's not with it, I never bought. But, you know, now that I've watched him more, I'm not sure if he is all with it. And I like the guy. But the way he moves, the way he talks, the way he reacts, it does make me a little nervous is to whether or not he's up to the job. And Kamala well, Harris didn't help him either. Yeah, and, and we need to talk about Kamala Harris. But but the fact is uh, that that is something that should be handled by the team around him so that explanations could be made as opposed to acting like, well, grandpa's not feeling, well, this is not one of grandpa's good days, but he still needs to make this speech or that speech. Uh, okay, before, I saw him at McCain's funeral. It was three years ago. And he stood about 15 feet away from him. Believe, I, I liked him, but I've always liked him. But he looked like he was 90 years old. And maybe there is no narrative you can put to it. Maybe the guy just is old and he's not with it anymore. And I, I empathize completely with his life story, but it's kind of scary when he seems half the time he doesn't seem with it and can't respond quickly. You know, Americans vibrant, we're a vibrant country. I want the guy that's running the country to be a little more, at least appear to be a little more with it. Yeah. Again, I just come back to the same thing. I think there's people around him who uh, need to communicate that things are okay better instead of letting this thing grow. Eric, uh, before we get to Kamala Harris, well, let's jump to Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris is the invisible vice president. Um, The idea when these two were elected was that she would be doing, without saying it specifically, a lot of on-the-job training. She may run in the four years or she could run at eight, whatever the case may be, but she was going to learn this job and she was going to become a leader. All I heard, and I may can take a lot of phone calls about this stuff, is that her presidential run was a disaster. Her organization was a disaster. There was infighting all over the place and she's not a great leader. Why does it feel like she's been benched by this White House um, and why is she not more prominent in handling things? You know, I, I don't know that that's true. Um, I, I certainly see her out there a lot. We don't know what meetings are happening at the White House. Um, 
my understanding is she's in many of these meetings, the last person to leave the room with the president. So I think this is a little bit of a Republican trope that, you know, they're trying to push that, oh, you got the one guy who's out of it and the vice president is not up to it. Like that's a that's a convenient narrative that I think Fox News pushes all the time. I, I don't know that it's necessarily true. You know, vice president, uh, it, it's just always been, you know, going back to Johnny Carson days, it's a great punchline job and it's an easy one to make fun of, but we, we don't really know what's going on there. And I, I think you got to be careful before you jump to conclusions about it. You know, it's funny to say that Eric too, when during the coming up to the election, you know, the last time the Trump people put out all this, or they, there was in the media uh, biosphere that, that Mike Pence was disengaged and whatever, and blah, blah, blah. I talked. So I got called some friends of mine in DC and like Pence is the last guy to leave every meeting. He's yeah. the last guy Trump. So I, I do agree. W- you know, she hasn't put on a great face. I agree with that. I mean, she needs some work on her image or whatever, but I'm not, I agree. I'm not sure what she's doing and nobody really knows. And I'm not going to believe Sean Hannity. No, but a presentation of the older guy and the younger woman who are working together would be a really smart thing to do. Uh, I yeah. would think somebody would understand that. No, I agree. And I, I don't, I, I, I don't think the the messaging has been consistent out of that white house. And I think it could be better, but you know, that's the proverbial drinking from a fire hose and you, you got this pandemic that won't go away. You got a, 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 you know, part of the country that won't get vaccinated. You're dealing with these foreign affairs crises. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> Not an enviable position to be in. Um, but the fact is they have created accomplishments. They've passed an aggressive agenda. They're working on more of it. And I, I just think I think the Afghanistan piece, I think, set them back in terms of a lot of the the, the public approval stuff. Um, and I think that's that's hamstrung them some. But even said that, you know, I, there was a sense of Biden's going to come in and just be the anti-Trump and kind of be a caretaker. And hats off to him. He's pushed a very aggressive agenda. I don't care how old he is or what people think of his mental state. He's pushed a very aggressive agenda. Now, you can we can get into like, should this all have been rolled into omnibus bills? Should it have been broken out into separate stuff? But, you know, he's he's sort of had the attitude, go big or go home. And I, I give him credit for that. You know, which is surprising to me because I actually voted for him because I hate Trump. I thought he would be much more conservative. Uh, I didn't think he'd be nearly as progressive as he's been. Um, and he, he does have some successes, but I do agree with Eric. Afghanistan, I think, was just the tipping point in public opinion and in, in doing basically a policy that Trump <laughs> wanted to do. But just yeah. the way they rolled it out, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it just it was it was like Vietnam. You know? Well, they 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 didn't really have a choice because of the decisions Trump had made. Yeah, I think, right? yeah, yeah. But, but that's going to be handled it. The, yeah. the optics of it were really bad. And, you know, they miscalculated, I think, on how quickly Kabul and the rest of the country would fall. Um, in the Taliban now in the last couple of days have said, OK, we might lighten up on some of our I don't believe them, but they're actually saying that. Well, it's a failed state right now. The poverty, the, the malnourishment, there was a big piece about, you know, the, the basically starving population because the Taliban can't govern and they can't they can't feed people. So they 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 need international help. But this is so now be- they need women. Yeah, <laughs> now they need women. Yeah, yeah. the irony. Uh, our friend Mark Doyle years ago uh, spent a year on the ground um, in bed uh, with uh, American troops and learned more about Afghanistan than he ever wanted to know. One of the great things about that when he came back. It caused him to start Rags of Honor, which is a wonderful organization to support to help keep uh, um, um, military members from being homeless. 
after they come back or if they are getting him jobs and opening a move on. But he wrote a great piece for the Tribune in 2014. He called out all this stuff. He wasn't the only one to know. The war was ridiculous. We were building roads to nowhere. We were building factories to nowhere. We had pallets of cash that were disappearing. All of it was a disaster. So when Biden moved on Afghanistan to shut it down, um, as the front man, he gets credit or loses credit depending on the success. And obviously, it, in a in, um, hundred ways, it was a massive failure. We are out, which is great. It doesn't help the fact that we lost lives there. But he also, and this goes to the team thing around him, and this is Defense Department, this is Pentagon stuff. He got horrible advice. So how is it after all these years that they didn't know, they, the Pentagon, <clears throat> pardon me, they, the Pentagon, didn't know that it was going to be a meltdown that could be, be a five-day thing that we had to get out of the country. We were being evicted. How, how was that not a thing that everybody knew? Well, Afghanistan's a country where dynasties go to die. Yeah. <laughs> Which we also knew. It's, it's like Missouri to Democratic candidates. Um, it, it's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't know enough about. You've been it. to Missouri lately, Eric. I just drove through there. Uh, that's not that. You ain't gonna do too well down there for a while. I don't. No, think. I mean, it's <laughs> not Afghanistan, right? Um, I, I don't know the answer, Steve. Um, it, it seems like from what I've read that the 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 Afghan forces just melted the minute you know that this that they faced any resistance, and nobody anticipated that. Now, why? After decades of training and funding them, they didn't know how incompetent they were. I, I can't answer that question. It seems inexplicable to me. Well, and there was they a, there read was a Vietnam just, book. Yeah, right. <laughs> but there wasn't just incompetence. There was fear of what they knew culturally prior sure. to Americans and Russians coming in. Uh, there was the fact that they weren't being fed. They weren't getting supplies. And this image that when the Americans left, we're in a lot of trouble. And, and uh, so there's a lot more to that story. But I think it goes to the larger failure with the good things that the Biden folks have gotten done, the larger failure of handling it. Look, it's no surprise. The presidency's a shit show. It's always been a shit show. You got one thing cleaned up, here comes another one. Right. But what Biden has had to follow with Trump is not just clean up all of Trump's mess and lies, but still deal with the daily world problem of the day that affects Americans. So, uh, I, you know, look, I, with I, Afghanistan. I, I still believe he's the right guy at the right time. But politically, Afghanistan to Biden, not opining on the what happened it just was devastating to him i think on a competence level people are like what the hell <laughs> and he's supposed to be the guy that's the foreign policy guy he's a longtime senate guy and it just i, I really think that hurt yeah it's just, so, go ahead, it reinforced, it re, no it just reinforced the senate you know we have so much cynicism about government and we just the failures pile up and then every time there's another one it's just another sort of shot across the bow in terms of, oh, government can't get anything done. And I think Pat's right. It, this one played right into that into that narrative. So let me slide over to Congress, uh, which is where Joe Biden lived most of his life. And he was a good negotiator. He was a guy that could make deals. And he was a guy that could work votes, frankly, on both sides of the aisle. He seems to be the guy now that's presiding over a bunch of school children in his own party, um, I don't know what it is with the Democrats now. Maybe it's always been the thing, but we have power. We're kind of insecure. We don't know if we're going to keep power. So we want what we want. We want it right now. We don't know if we can pay for it, but damn it, we want it. And we're going to scream at each other until we get it. Um, is Nancy Pelosi able to handle the school children in the house? Because it, it, it's really gotten out of hand. Yeah, I, look, I think that's another thing that I'm upset about is not that there's disagreements on policy that we've allowed 
we, we have disagreements in our caucus and they have crazy people in their caucus who think that, you know, wildfires were caused by Jews firing lasers out of their eyes who Wait, hold on, hold on. That's Marjorie Taylor green, Eric, I'll say it. Yeah. So there's, <laughs> Wait a minute. that's not true. I'm writing it down. Yeah. They have, they have members of that caucus who, you know, promote assassinating their opponents who put out videos, cutting off members heads who sort of All goes, incite, incite violence, who basically, you know, are undemocratic and are doing whatever Trump wants. My point being, Yes, Democrats act like Democrats. We have policy disagreements. We can be petty. Uh, but the fact that we've allowed a narrative to take hold that the, the national narrative is, oh, progressives and moderates fighting while we've got this this crazy caucus over here that that no offense to McCarthy, who, you know, he has to manage that thing. But if Republicans take over the House, these nutbags are going to be in power. They're going to be in control. And is that what you really want in America today? Like people who, you know, basically said domestic terrorists were patriots. People who killed cops were just peaceful protesters. You know, people who believe that Democrats are running an international pedophilia movement and suck blood out of children and all this crazy QAnon stuff. Those are members of the House who will be in charge of committees if Republicans take control. And the fact that that's not a national narrative right now, the narrative is, oh, Democrats are fighting over the size of an infrastructure package or, you know, a social a social uh, safety net package, I think is a failure on our party to control the narrative. Oh, I agree I with that 100 percent. The uh, Democrats those, have blown this. But along those lines with the crazies um, that you just mentioned, I mean, there's there's some crazies on the Democratic side, but not the type we've seen in the last couple of weeks with the Republicans, you did finally see some blowback beyond Adam Kinzinger the other day when Congressman Crenshaw pointed out Jordan and all these people and said, these are just carnival barkers. These are grifters. We should have quit listening to them. Crenshaw's a very conservative member of the, of, of the Republican caucus, as you know. So I'm not as convinced that I think we will win the House back. I'm not as convinced that the carnival barkers are going to get the attention they think they're going to get when we actually have to govern. McCarthy, love or hate him for what he's done in the last couple of years, is a very good politician. He's very good at getting keeping his caucus together to the extent he can. And he's very good at getting things done if he becomes speaker. I just think they will have less of a voice. The well, problem with McCarthy, right there, I, I'm not. Optimistic. I hope. I mean, listen, I don't I, I um, Christie was in town. Chris Christie was in town a couple of weeks ago. And I went and they were talking about some of this stuff and he didn't really go after it like Kinsinger would have. I'm like, what? You know, it's, Right is right and wrong is wrong. That's not policy. That's treason. And that's horrible. Um, but I'm hoping that that with people like Crenshaw stepping up, that's beyond the kind of Adam Kinzinger's and he's a war hero, that that will have some effect on these guys. But the problem is, is in, in Pat, you and I've talked about this off the air a lot. Um, and, you know, how I feel about Kevin McCarthy. But to be completely fair, I don't doubt that he's a great politician and I don't doubt that he was and has the ability to be a terrific leader, but he now gets to own Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar and all these other lunatics who he continues to protect by not speaking up about them. What is the downside for Kevin McCarthy to say, I'm not tolerating this. He won't be it's more than just being pulled off a committee. I'm telling I'm, I'm, I'm telling the, the QAnon folks, which is a tiny fraction of my party, that this is not real. And that this is not the way the Republican Party is going to lead and win again. How is that not the message they ought to be running with? Well, he wouldn't win the speakership because the votes there, that Freedom Caucus, 
the what 25 or 30 of them, they do have some influence, not as great an influence as I think people think, but they do. So he needs those votes to be speaker. I'm oh not God, sure. What a great job then. What a fantastic well, no, I mean, listen, but I've seen, <laughs> I've seen Nancy Pelosi and other people that come in those spots. That's caucus politics. I'm not agreeing with what you're or disagreeing with what you're saying on what the message should be. But the reality is if you want to get elected speaker, you've got to get the votes in your caucus and they are part of the caucus for better, or for worse. So we need to find somebody in the Republican party like you, who actually gives a shit about people and wants to do the right thing. Well, we've got somebody, you know what happened to him? We've got two people, you know what happened to them? They're getting their ostracized. Congresswoman Cheney and, and Adam Kinzinger. So tell people what they need to do to fight for that. If they believe in traditional conservative values, just sit back and watch it. Well, the quote unquote conservative values have been um, Trump took it over. He's not a conservative. He's a nut, but that, that's now now defined as conservatism. And if you're not on Trump train, you're not a conservative, but that's never been conservatism. I mean, it's not Barry Goldwater. That's not Ronald Reagan. That's not any of them. So I, I don't know what you do, but I, it'll be interesting to say, I do believe we're going to win the House back, how they govern. And if they govern like they talk, it's, it's going to be a very quick trip in the majority. It, it, it all, you know, listen, I won't get on my soapbox here because I don't have one. But uh, the sermon I always go to is this. This is all based on the absolute belief that has been proven time and time again that people won't show up to vote in primaries and primaries are used as a lever to control who's in and who's out in their club. So until the public shows up in huge numbers, I don't know how that changes. I'm not just, in fact, I was just looking at the governor numbers before we got on here in Illinois, there was 10% turnout in the primary in, in 2014. But that being said, primaries are, are party events. That's to select your nominee. So party politics, plays and everybody plays. And we saw the big Democratic slating session yesterday. And, and thanks to Eric Edelstein, uh, Alexi Giannoulis got the Democratic slate. And so that's party politics. I don't really have a problem with that. It's just that when they get in and they don't comport themselves with the Constitution or decency, then it's a problem. I, I would just so look forward to a really long, boring two years of discussion about whether or not there's a disagreement over policy and politics and how we find answers, as opposed to Jewish lasers and uh, it, it, and communists and Nazis and all the crap we hear day after day. So, Eric, this isn't news to Pelosi. This isn't news to the Democrats. Isn't there a panic button somewhere somebody hit that said we're going to lose the Congress? I would hope so. But, you know, I, I think, you know, you you um, the, you read a lot of this kind of apocalyptic uh, history and the sort of rise of authoritarianism and decline of democracy. And you see a recurring pattern, which is that the the keepers of the flame don't take the threat seriously enough. They somehow mitigate the black swan event until it happens. And then everyone's surprised because the crazies came out on top. And I, you know, there are some I don't know that I agree. I'm just I'm just saying there's some literature and writing on this moment in time that that's what's going on here. And that and I just go back to this. I'm not saying that federal voting rights legislation will will fix everything, but it will stop this sort of slow moving coup d'etat that's happening at the local level on how to take over elections when you don't like who gets elected. So, yeah, I don't I don't again, I don't I have a lot of respect for Speaker Pelosi. Um, I, I can't imagine she's not sounding the alarm bells a lot. Uh, the question becomes, will the president uh, you know, change his mind and get rid of the damn filibuster and make something happen here.
And the filibuster by the kids is a political thing that's been pulled for years. It's not some grand tradition in American politics. And it could be handled any way Biden wanted it to be handled uh, now if he pushed for it. So why he's waiting is is I, I don't understand. Oh, last time Democrats did that didn't work out so well from we've got a 6-3 Supreme Court now because of what Harry Reid did. So I am not big on changing process, and it's particularly in that body. But I know that's a lot of Democrats believe that. Well, but Harry Reid began the ruining of the Senate. Mitch McConnell continued the ruining of the Senate. Uh, somebody's got to bring it back. And the, and the filibuster, to me, is the way you start. How? By by ending it as a way to uh, and by the way, you don't even have to do the Mr. Smith goes to Washington thing anymore. It's like a kid going in the car going, I call shotgun. I'm going to filibuster it. I don't even have to stand up and make stuff up for 12 hours. So, you know, these are the games that people in America who actually go to work and do jobs are tired of. Well, you, you what you end up doing is you right now you have to have a supermajority in the Senate to pass anything. Is that what right. we want? I mean, that's what the if in effect the filibuster has created. At a minimum, if you don't get rid of it, make them stand there and actually filibuster all day, not just pass a procedural vote that says sixty of us have to approve something or we can block it. Like this is basically ground democracy to a halt. And you know what's the point of having a majority if you can't govern with it? And that's basically you know, the situation. I would love to see. Uh, I disagree on that. I would love to see some kind of um, redistricting reform because what's even happened in this cycle, the Republicans in the last 12 years have controlled 75 percent of the state legislatures and they're drawing the map. So this hyper partisan atmosphere is just going to get worse because these districts, there's no general election. It's all about the primary. Well, and I think, you know, we could go down the road of what are some things you could do if you get rid of primaries. Uh, that would be one huge step, I think, in cutting down on the partisanship. Just, just make them these the jungle ballot, like California. Yeah, everybody runs in the top two. Move on. I think you, you, and you know, and, and you could add ranked choice voting into that. There, there are structural things we could do. I agree. It does not work down this well. Because look, I, I also believe, as much as I, I know, I sound um, gloom and doom. That I don't think the American people are as polarized. I guarantee uh, or as divided as the media narrative and social media is. It's just these hyper partisan voices get get sort of, um, you know, accelerated and heard more. But I think there there is a reasonable middle here that um, is just kind of getting drowned out in the process. So I agree. And that, that's why my somewhat disappointment with Biden is and I still think maybe I'm right, but maybe I was wrong. I thought he was the man for the moment to be that bigger than the nonsense but it seems like he kind of got dragged back into it. Uh, but right now, the you know, Pelosi and McConnell's guys have been around forever, so they're not the leadership, the, the new generation of leadership that could take that message. But I agree with you, Eric. I, I don't see, and I'm out and about a lot now because of the campaigns, the country or the people, at least in Illinois, aren't as divided as no. you might think if you flip on the cable channels at night. That's no, right. But I, I think the middle's gotten wider, and that's a good thing. But again... Folks got to show up until the system is different. You got to show up. The pause was for effect. Um, all right. So moving out of Washington to uh, Springfield, uh, who's going to be the governor? Of Illinois? Yeah. Well, so that's I wasn't referring to the Simpsons home in Springfield, Ohio, <laughs> actually. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, on the, I'll, I'll speak to the Republican side. We've got four candidates right now. Gary Rabine, a, Self-made business guy, Jesse Sullivan, um, 
as a crypto guy, he's got an interesting background. Paul Schimpf, who ran for attorney general four years ago and got like 20% of the vote. And Darren Bailey, who is the favorite of Trump world, who is now the leading candidate who yesterday put, or two days ago, announced his running mate. As you know, you have to announce your running mate in Illinois now before the race. Uh, Stephanie Trussell, who I knew on WLS back in the day, um, who put up a tweet with President Obama with a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, Colt 45 malt liquor. Hmm, that'll be good for the Republican. <laughs> it's horrible. I think there's going to be another candidate emerge, uh, probably a very well-funded candidate through Ken Griffin. It'll probably come out um, in January and the petitions begin being filed to get on the ballot. Excuse me, January 13th. Well, Rabine, I, I hear a lot of very positive things about um, why is he not able to get traction with Ken Griffin and his money? I'm actually uh, working with Rabine. Maybe that's the problem, but um, <laughs> for him, no, he, uh, he is, he's got a great message. He's a very authentic guy, self-made, you know, multimillionaire now because he started a paving business back right when he came out of high school. So I think he's got a good message. I think Governor Pritzker has some vulnerabilities, particularly on crime, but when you've got unlimited funds to spend, it's, it's tough to beat him. You agree, Eric? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the the, the environment certainly um, is going to be tougher for Democrats. Illinois is still a very blue state. I've seen numbers on Governor Pritzker that people still give him a positive job approval. And, you know, the Republicans don't have a candidate right now and they're going to have a they're going to have a it looks like a divisive primary. And keep in mind, Illinois primary has now been moved from March to June. And, you know, typically around the country, the later a primary is, the better it is for the incumbent because the challenger has less time to sort of introduce themselves, make a case. So all that combines to say if, if we were in Las Vegas and putting odds on this, uh, you know, I think the governor is a comfortable favorite. It's not to say he couldn't lose, but um, you'd much rather be in his situation than the Republican situation going into the fall. Pat, you know. I, I agree. Who's leaking the information out to the New York Times and Politico that he's on the short list to be president? Because that yeah, I, I don't know. You know, the Democratic governors had a had one of their annual things in New Orleans this weekend. So I imagine a lot of governors were walking around looking in the mirror, seeing a president. Uh, you know, I think that's just that's just part of the job. Um, but I don't know who was who was putting that out. Um, uh, Pat, you uh, know Springfield because that's where you work a good uh, majority of your time. Um, are the Republicans and Democrats playing nice since uh, Mike Madigan left? It's I wouldn't go that far, but I would say it's it is completely different. And I give give Speaker Watts a lot of credit. It's much more um, people are much more engaged down there. Back when Madigan was there, it was like literally it was like the land of Oz. You, you, Tim Mapes, the guy son, died. You couldn't get back to see him. Nobody got back to see him. Chris Welch really, Speaker Welch, has really engaged people. You can get in there now. He'll listen to you. So that has changed. Of course, they fight. Um, Leader Durkin and Chris Speaker Welch fight. But I, the, and I, from a Democratic perspective and a governor's perspective, they've gotten 15 massive pieces of legislation through in the last couple of years, including this big climate bill, which I think might, may come back to bite him a little bit because I think there's some arguments to be made that it was a bailout, whether you agree or disagree. But he's... It's a different environment down there, but it's in no way as much fun as it was maybe 15 years ago before everybody started screaming at each other. Fun being defined how? Just that, you know, nobody's, um, I don't know, it used to be you could have an argument 
with someone, a good argument, a policy argument, but never got nasty or there's tweets or this guy's a whatever. It's just, it's not as much fun in the sense that I always enjoy what I do. I really love it, but it used to be people just got along better. Although I think they get along a heck of a lot better than you would read in the media. Eric, you hearing much out of Springfield? I know you're running around the country working with candidates. Yeah, not too much other than, you know, I do think there's a there's more of a uh, of a spirit of getting things done. And I think that there's a, a feeling of, you know, there it's it's a new era. I think everyone's kind of holding their breath to see how it plays out. It was it was it was so kind of calcified in one way for so many decades that I think it's going to be interesting over the next couple of cycles to see how it plays out. Are you going to have consistency of leadership or are you going to have turnover? And I don't think we know the answer to that or will for a while. And Greg Harris announced the, hmm. the number two guy announced he's not, not running again. The only add on to that, Eric, I think is um, I don't think that the Democrats at the house level are going to have nearly as good a political operation as they did under Maddie and love or hate the guy. The guy was a workaholic and he knew how to get people elected. And uh, I'm not dinging Chris Welch, but nobody's ever going to be that good. Right. Before or we, uh, before uh, uh, we wrap it up with Chicago, the city of Chicago, uh, what's Kinzinger going to do, Pat? I think he's going to run for president. Well, it makes for an interesting story. Well, it was interesting when Chris Christie was in town, former governor, who's also running for president. And it was just at the Union League Club a couple of weeks ago. And someone asked a question about Kinzinger, who's an interest of full disclosure, is a very good friend of mine. Um, Christie unloaded on him. It was pretty funny. Like, oh, I guess he doesn't want him run. Is he a long shot? Could he win? I don't know. But you know what? Um, he's got a message I like. He could go to Iowa. He's got four or five million bucks and, and run and, and, and see what happens. Maybe the country will be ready for something different. I don't know, but he's a, he's an impressive guy. He's been very courageous and uh, hats off to him. Yeah. Look, you can go back and, and rewind the clock and talk about all the times that he didn't uh, stand up and played with Trump. But the fact that he and Liz Cheney have stood up and done what they've done needs to be saluted. And the rest of the Republican party would do themselves favors to not do all the petty shit that they've done to both of them in the last year. All right. City of Chicago, you both live there. I work there every single day for years and years and years and years. I am now at a point I never thought I'd be. I'm not entirely comfortable about coming downtown after dark. Tell me why I and others shouldn't be worried about it because the image that was painted of Chicago forever, which was unfair that it was the old West is now come to Michigan Avenue and State Street. So you're there, well, Pat, Eric. Well, first of all, did you come downtown during the 90s? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the 90s, they were dropping a thousand bodies a year and Mayor Daley was the mayor and the crime was, was violent crime was worse than it is today. Now, having said that, uh, we didn't have social media then. We didn't have the kind of, you know, breaking news all the time. And there's no question crime is up across the country. L.A., New York, St. Louis, Cleveland, Detroit. And, you know, it's a it's a variety of factors. There's uniqueness in Chicago, given the flow of guns and the easy accessibility to it. And much of the violence is a function of social media beefs with kids who then go out and have access to guns and can take it out on gangs. And, you know, these gangs are much smaller units right now. You know, I, I think the mayor uh, needs to be communicating a little better on the things she is doing because there's a lot going on. But I think when people don't feel safe, then they're then that just 
that just brews this interesting um, feeling like you just said, Steve. But I would just say, I, you know, I'm a student of history. And the fact is, in the 90s, the numbers were, uh, you know, 30 percent worse in terms of the number of murders in, in Chicago. And yet Chicago was built up. We, we've also had decades and decades of disinvestment in certain communities. And there was a policing approach that said, if all the crime is happening in these few neighborhoods, that's OK. We'll 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 constrain it to these places and let you know the rest of the city thrive. And I think Mayor Lightfoot, to her credit, has said, you know, that's not that's not right. We have to take it on everywhere that it is. And, um, you know, when you combine COVID with the racial reckoning, with the crime wave, with the economic unrest, you have created this perfect storm that we see playing out across the country. I think that much like a virus, crime waves go in cycles. Um, I think people are hopeful that this is maybe we're getting towards the end of this two year cycle. But I would just keep in mind when people say it's never been this bad, it was worse under Mayor Daly. This is statistically, you're not wrong, obviously, but I don't remember uh, mass uh, break ins uh, downtown the way they've happened now. And I don't remember shootouts on Lakeshore Drive um, where another person was killed just uh, this week. Uh, Pat, what's your feeling living downtown now? You know, a lot of what Eric said in the second two thirds of his analysis, I agree with. There's been a lack of investment, a lack of effective programs in those communities, which have led to a lot of this crime. But where I completely disagree is, first of all, I was, I was in the state attorney's office in the late 80s and early 90s. There were 900,000 murders. The difference is there's more shootings and there's more violent crime spread out of those areas than there ever has been. I, I don't agree at all. That it was it was bad in the 90s, but it's never been as bad as it is now. And I think a huge and I'm not I'm not digging the mayor for this because the mayor's actually said some things I, I agree with. She's a former prosecutor. She gets it. The problem is Kim Fox. We've got a prosecutor. and There's a whole bunch of them around the country that are seeking to redefine what it means to be a prosecutor. And instead of accountability for crimes, it's become a big social service agency. I understand and completely agree with some of the bail reform. And some of the fact that you can't treat lower level drug offenders as criminals. Tom Dart, the sheriff here, at one point ran the biggest mental health hospital right. in the country, and that's the Cook County Jail. The point is, she has gone way too far, as has the prosecutor in Philadelphia and L.A., in not holding people accountable. There have been, there's been example after example of violent street crimes where the people that commit the crimes aren't charged and or they're back on the street in 24 hours. They're letting people out. It's catch and release and it's not working. It's a huge, complicated problem. I agree with that. Look, I agree with you, Pat. And if you look at and Dart, you know, the sheriff puts out those electronic monitoring numbers. You look at just versus a couple of years ago, the number of people who create who've committed violent crimes who were out on some sort of monitoring that frankly doesn't really work because the sheriff's office doesn't have the resources to track these people. People would be shocked. And, you know, that's an incredibly frustrating thing for the mayor and for the police department who make these arrests, confiscate guns, and then these guys are back on the street. Yeah, 94 people that had been charged with murder were out on bond. And it's, I, I'm not, I've been saying this for two years. I am not faulting the mayor on that. I really am not. This is Kim Fox and the chief judge who have decided that we're not going to prosecute criminals anymore. And I understand there's been policing mistakes. There needs to be police reform. I saw it. But you can't just not charge Wild West shootouts like you got a couple months ago 
and say, well, we don't have the evidence because it was a it was a mutual combat. Well, then charge them with gun crimes. The reason we got out of the problems in the 90s, and I, I understand that the crime bill in 94 went too far, but we actually started in New York and here and other places, started prosecuting people. There are people that are bad people that need to go to the penitentiary and not get out. And here's another thing that's going to come out in the next couple of months. The governor, with all due respect, and his parole board, they're letting, remember the Lincoln Park rapist? Yeah. He's out. Yeah. Ed Strayhorn said, you should never see the light of day. I would give you death if I could, but he was not death eligible. The point is, the pendulum's gone too far to social justice within the prosecutor's office. It's time to get back and get a real prosecutor in there to do this. Because, listen, I, you guys know I've been I was a prosecutor for 11 years and I watch what she's doing. I'm just shaking my head. And, and the reality is, you know, the people that are most affected, not just where I live and I'm worried maybe getting shot coming home late on Michigan Avenue, but it's the people of color who are being the most damaged by this because those places that Eric talked about, those are absolute war zones and nothing's being done to stop it. The conversation on this has to continue and it will. uh, But in the meantime, I appreciate both of you doing this and taking the time. Let's end on a positive note. Happy holidays. I hope you're around your families. It sounds like you both will be. I hope they tolerate both of you. I wish you luck in that. And uh, thanks for the friendship and also for all the information and, and, you know, just sharing your views, as Chuck would say. Anytime. It's great to see you, Steve, Pat. Happy holidays. All Meet the best. You guys. I miss not seeing you every Thursday. I know. It. Same here, but I'll be in your bushes outside your house. So, you know, keep that in mind. <laughs> spot for you. See you, boys. All right. Bye. Happy holidays. Thanks, nice to see you. You run the firm called Stein and Liston Media. Politician, guide, encyclopedia. They'll all be fine. Because they're all with Adelstein. If you're looking to purchase a new home or refinance the one that you're in, you need to do what I did, what my family has done, and what many of you do every day. You call Team Hochberg, your trusted local lender. Tom retired, Social Security income of $30,000 a year, and over $2 million in retirement assets, contacted three banks to refinance and purchase another home in Florida, and they all told Tom he didn't qualify. So he called Team Hochberg and got a free consultation. Team Hochberg helped Tom refinance his Illinois home and helped him purchase a home in Florida using something called an asset depletion loan. Now, you don't have to know what that is. You just have to know to call Team Hochberg. That's their area of expertise. So let's review. Before calling Team Hochberg, Tom was told by three banks, you can't refinance, you can't buy a new house. He called Team Hochberg, and Tom had his rate lowered, his monthly payment refinancing for his current home, and he purchased a new home. Team Hochberg helped thousands of my podcast listeners in the last year, and they can certainly help you too. Whether you want to use your retirement assets to refinance and purchase new homes or anything related to the money that revolves around and in and out of your house, you need Team Hochberg. Let them help you like they helped Tom. But they can help if you don't call 855-56-DAVID or 56david.com. And a reminder to tune into Home Sweet Home Chicago, hosted by David, Saturday mornings on AM 720 WGN from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. A reminder to Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender, NMLS number 1124061. Hey, one thing I forgot to mention when it comes to the New Year's Eve show, rousecenter.org, R-A-U-E center.org for tickets, 3 o'clock New Year's Eve.
come up, have a laugh. Uh, I forgot to mention that uh, the fine people at Apt Electronics have given us a bunch of gift cards we can give away. So you can actually come to the show and make money. Apt Electronics, A-B-T Electronics. Uh, dot com, and I'm sure about that too. And you know, app pleasing people since uh, the, since the Flintstones. Uh, so uh, thank you, app, for that. All right. In the final days of 2021, charities have been hammered for the last two years, and they still need your help. And I know you are a good and giving people that listen to me and have listened to me for years, and I love you for that. Um, but I'm asking you to consider doing even a little bit more. Uh, because right now you can go to CochranShow.com. You click on Worthy Causes for a long list of great organizations. And one of them we haven't mentioned before here, I don't believe, is uh, Meals on Wheels. This is an organization that helps not just older folks, but anybody in need of having meals delivered to their home. And with the last two years, that's a lot of people. Uh, They work on a donation basis. They're incredibly generous. The volunteers that deliver your meals are amazing people. And I hope you'll consider helping them. Meals on Wheels org, And uh, there's a Meals on Wheels in all likelihood right in your town. Thank you, Ross Cochran. As always, Ross will be on stage with us on New Year's Eve. And uh, I look forward to that because, well, you know, he's my kid still, even though he's a grown man. Um, and uh, I look forward to seeing you. Oh, by the way, next time we do this, uh, Ross and I will talk a little bit about this podcast and our plans for the next couple of weeks. And looking ahead to 2022, and we still have this week a Christmas version of the Deep Six coming up on Friday. Uh, subscribe, like, follow, all of those things, and give the last-minute Christmas gift that keeps on giving by downloading this podcast for somebody and subscribing so they never miss a single episode. You know what else is a good last-minute gift would be those tickets to the three o'clock comedy extravaganza new year's eve for people that can't stay awake till dinner to take their meds uh it's three o'clock on new year's eve and that'd be a nice gift too you can get those tickets at rousecenter.org i hadn't mentioned it yet i thought i'd bring it up uh thank you for listening we'll see you next time on live from my office 30 years plus on the airwaves you have turned your dial to me now you're tuned into my podcast It's live from my office, Steve. From Ithaca, New York, to Carolina South, W. Cochran, Steve. From Minneapolis, and then Chicago twice, top-rated shows achieved. Sit back, relax, and now listen to my show. When or wherever you are, cause you're on the go. It's live from my office, Steve. Thank you for listening to Live from My Office, a service of Monkey Run Productions. All rights reserved. The podcast is hosted by Steve Cochran, and it's mixed, edited, and produced by me, Ross Cochran. Support the show by subscribing wherever you're listening and by telling your friends about it. Follow Steve on all social media channels, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And make sure you check out this episode's show notes for relevant information discussed during the conversations. You can also email the show directly at thecochranshow at gmail.com 
with any questions or comments. And that's the best place to tell us about your favorite nonprofit so we can make sure we mention them on the next episode. Steve is available for corporate speaking gigs. He would love to MC your event. And occasionally, he's funny. Thank you for listening. Head to CochranShow.com for more. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.